glad you're here. And if you're joining us online, I'm glad you're joining us uh, this morning. We're honored that you take some time out, uh, whether you're online or in the room, to uh, pursue Jesus together. And I, I hope our time together is an encouragement. I hope it helps you draw close to Jesus. And we're going to be in Hebrews 3. So if you want to follow along, you can turn to Hebrews 3 if you got a phone and you got the Bible app on there, you can go there. Also, if you're new here and we haven't had a chance to connect, new-ish, um, and we haven't had a chance to connect, I'd love to have lunch with you after service today. Um, we're going to be down in the kids' hall. We call it the fellowship hall is the, is the space we're going to be in. But if you go down past the bathrooms, uh, you'll find it. And uh, if you're online, if you join us online, you can, you know, if you're local, you can drive here and be here in time. You got to take a shower beforehand. That's one rule that we have that's not required of our online audience normally. So, um, uh, new to MCC, so we'd love for you to join us for lunch. Hebrews 3 is where we're going to be. I, um, I remember um, a couple years ago, I think, I should have I Googled this, I should have verified ahead of time, but it's not that important. I think Oprah um, bought Weight Watchers. Yeah, yeah, okay. You remember when Oprah brought Weight Watchers? And then she became like the face of Weight Watchers. And as it is, you know, every January, January, you know, all the weight loss things and the gyms and all those things start really cranking. I remember they had this commercial and it was probably my wife and I's collective favorite commercial ever. And, and it was this Weight Watchers commercial, and, uh, um, and, and it just said at some random point in the middle, Oprah's there talking to, you know, some of her best friends are all sitting around. And she says this. She says, I love bread. <laughs> and I thought, preach! Anybody else? I am on board. There, there may be leftovers in the house. There will never be leftover bread, Right? <laughs> I love bread. And I thought, if that's all you have to do to join Weight Watchers is love bread, like I'm on the team Oprah, right? I'm with Oprah. The thing is, though, the funny thing is that um, it's in our nature always to figure out ways to divide ourselves, to figure out which team we're on. If we're on the, I love bread. My wife and I will still say this to each other all the time. I love bread. Bread, or if we're on the, you know, uh, you know, godless side of take or leave it, bread, right, team. I love. We we are intrinsically a people that, for some reason, love to figure out every possible way that we can divide ourselves. And this is not a new phenomenon. This is, goes throughout human history, all the way back to the beginning of recorded human history, of people choosing over and over again to figure out the ways to identify themselves. Think about this. This is most of the time we identify ourselves by who's not welcome, by who's outside of our group. And this was no different in the early church. It was no different than in, in Judaism, even before Jesus came along. And it was no different even after Jesus left. We have been a people who have over and over and over again tried to figure out how do we divide ourselves out. Before Jesus came in the Jewish custom... Um, that obviously Jesus was born into, and you know, he's Jewish Messiah. In the Jewish custom, it, it was something very familiar. Uh, way back, they would divide themselves um, uh, largely by two camps. And they would say they were either the, uh, a part of the house of Hillel or the house of Shammai. And each one of those had little like subcategories. They divide one another out. You probably know some of them if you've spent much time in the gospel, right? You know some of them like, you know, like the, the, the Pharisees, right? 
The Pharisees were a, a, a group of people who defined themselves by, by who was not welcome. That they wanted to know, we are the right. And the, the Pharisees were predominantly a, a pretty conservative uh, Jewish expression of the faith. They, one of the unique things about them is that they believed that there was a resurrection to come. And then there was this other group you hear about a lot in the, the Gospels, a uh, group named the Sadducees, right? And they were often, we would consider a little bit more liberal in their understanding. And they divided themselves. We're the Sadducees and they're the Pharisees. They believe in a resurrection and we don't believe in a resurrection, which if you ever want to remember the difference, right? The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. You see, right? Sadducees, okay? There were others. There were the Essenes, there were the Essenes. Um, there was the Zealots. The Zealots was a whole group. It's, it's actually where we get the idea of being a Zealot. It's from this religious group of Jews. And basically, um, their commitment to one another was, let's murder all the Romans, right? But that's how they define themselves, was all these other people aren't welcome. Well, then Jesus comes along. And Jesus is this Jewish Messiah, and he shows up, and, and, and we, as our people, we do, we start to divide ourselves. This is one of the predominant struggles of the early church all throughout the book of Acts, is they start dividing themselves, saying, well, we're the, we're the real Christians, we're the Jewish Christians, and there's this group over here. Well, you know, we think that everyone can be, and you don't have to be a Jew first. And, and, and Paul critiques a lot of this. They begin to divide themselves into more and more camps by who is not welcome. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is confronting. We've been reading through the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 3. We've been reading through it, and he's saying over and over and over again, Jesus is better, Jesus is better, Jesus is better. And he starts by saying Jesus is better than the messengers. Right? He's better than angels. He, he's better than, um, he, he's going to say today, he's better than Moses. He's better than the law. He's better than um, the land. He's better than the high priest. He's better than the sacrificial system. But in the early church, there was a sect of Jewish believers who'd begun to divide themselves by the house that they were a part of. And they began to separate themselves from others. And so Hebrews 3, let me just read it to you and then we're going to talk a little bit about it. It says this, Therefore, holy brethren, uh, it, it, it's important, it's a gender neutral. It, it, he's saying, some of your translation may even say, holy brothers and sisters. I think that's, that's really great. Partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house was, has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Do you see what he does, right? He took this thing that the, the, the group of Jews had begun to use as a thing that divided them, 
And he wanted to very graciously, very kindly show them that Jesus was better. Here's the thing. One commentator, he said this. He said, it is impossible to overstate the importance of Moses to a first century Jew. It is impossible. He was the guy, right? He's the guy who led them out of Egypt. He's the guy who gave them the law. He was a great prophet. He was a great judge. He, in fact, in the book of Hebrews, he's spoken of more than any other Old Testament person. Throughout the New Testament, he's spoken of more than any other Old Testament person. He was a center of the faith. But the thing that the writer of Hebrews is trying to confront in him, and I think we have to confront of ourselves so often, is that sometimes good things, even God-given things, can become idols. Sometimes good things, even things that God... Moses was an incredible leader, an incredible gift to the Jewish people, an incredible gift to humanity because it was through the people of of the Jewish faith that, that Jesus came and our Messiah came. But when we make good things, even God-given things, the center of our faith, they become idols, and they actually become things that push us further away from God, not closer to him. The Jewish people had begun to use Moses, this, this great figure, to be a thing that caused division inside the house of God. So look, look at how the, the writer of Hebrews is just, um, he's masterful, Right, and, and so look at how he, he kind of walks these people through that love Moses so much. He, he says this. He says, he was faithful, speaking of Jesus, as Moses was also, right? Like, like uh, on a scale, like they're both faithful. That's good. That's good. But he says, that, but there's more, right? Verse three, he says, he, he's been counted as worthy, being Jesus, worthy of more glory. And then here's why. He says in verse five, he says this, because Moses was faithful, look, look, at, look, at, look at what he says. Moses was faithful in the house, but Christ over his house. In another spot in, in verse 5, it calls Moses a servant. A servant who served in the house, but Christ was over the house. So why does this matter? Moses isn't really a big dividing controversial figure for us. The role of circumcision or the Jewish faith or the cleanliness laws or the dietary laws don't tend to be very divisive controversial things for us because it is our disposition as people to like to figure out how to divide ourselves by those who aren't welcome. And this was not a problem that stopped when the writer of Hebrews wrote. In fact, it was a problem that occurred all throughout the early church. Um, there, there's another passage in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians uh, 13. Paul is writing this time, and he's writing in the church of Corinth. And if you know anything about church history, he, here's what you probably know about Corinth. Um, Corinth was a dumpster fire of a church. Like it was just, if there was a problem, Corinth had it. It was a mess, right? And unity was one of the massive problems in the church of Corinth. And look at what he says to him. He says this. He says, what then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants, this is the same word he uses of Moses in the book of Hebrews, servants through whom you believe. You see, in the early church, Jesus comes along. He dies on the cross for our sin. He's raised from, from the dead. He ascends up into heaven. He is our savior. He's the Messiah. He's king of all of creation. And then, you know what the early church starts doing? They go, 
Well, I like Jesus, but I'm on team Paul. I like Jesus, but I'm with Paul. And the group over here goes, <laughs> Paul, have you seen him? Nearsighted, short, bald, stutters when he talks. I'm with Apollos. You know what Apollos' name means? It means eloquent. Whoo! I'm with that tall, smart, great speaker, right? It's a disease that consumed the early church from the very beginning, beginning to divide themselves, divide the house of God. And it's something that we do just the same today. We come up with all these eloquent reasons why. We come up with all these um, really well-sounding, smart ideas, but there is such a disposition in our souls to want to define who is not welcome and who stands outside the circle. And I think it causes great sorrow in the heart of Jesus. The writer of Hebrews is trying to point us to whether it's Moses or it's Paul or it's Apollos or it's your theology or it's some great communicator today or it's some great movement that's going on today or it's any other affiliation that all of those things must bend their knees in submission to Jesus. You know, it catches all of us. Just this week, just this week, just this week, I was having a conversation with another pastor, a dear friend, a very close friend of mine. And, uh, you know, I I'd read some stuff um, about some theological positions amongst the denomination he's a part of. And so, you know, I, I did the responsible passive-aggressive thing because that's the mature thing to do, right? I was like, hey, uh, you know, I was just reading. Could you help me understand what you guys mean by this? I'm just curious. I, I want to learn better, Right? But all the while, you know what's going on in my heart? You're wrong. Like the whole time in my heart, all I want to do is, I, <laughs> I'm going to prove to him right, that I'm right. I'm going, to, I'm going to enlighten him to the truth of what really Jesus is trying to say. And even from a pastor to another pastor just this week, I was trying to point him out to him about how he stood outside the circle of being right. I had this vision in my mind that there'd be one day, even if I couldn't convince him this side of heaven, that there'd be one day and he'll be stand, we'll, we'll all be standing in front of Jesus and Jesus will say, what were you thinking? And then I realized that Jesus was talking to me. We have such a tendency to take good things, even God-given things, and make them the center of our faith to where instead of drawing people to Jesus, they're defining who's not welcome. And this was the problem with the, the, this group of Jews that's being written to is they were taking Moses, a good, a God-given thing, and they were making him a line of delineation to prove who was not inside the circle. Same thing in Corinth. You know, Paul writes to another group of people in Ephesians. He writes um, to them. Let me, let me just open it here for you. Um, Ephesians 4 he, he writes to the, the church at Ephesus. <laughs> They're having problems with division. This is like a normal thing amongst people because we have such a proclivity to want to divide ourselves. 
He says this, therefore I, the prisoner Paul, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience. Listen to this, I love this. Like Paul's real, he, he knows life. Showing tolerance. Uh, one, one, passage, one translation says, bearing with one another, enduring one another. In love. Verse 3, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. One of the things that I believe is shown throughout scripture that God intended for his church to be shockingly unusual about was that it was called to be a place that didn't divide based on who was not welcome, but was united under the flag of one savior and one king. And yet, whether it's our politics or it's our theology or it's our ideology or it's our view on whatever, so often, we as the church are known more for the ways we divide than the ways we come together. We are known more for creating lines to identify those who are wrong and not welcome. And you know, I was talking with this friend. I was, you know, I, I'm still, I'm be transparent, I'll be honest with you. I still know that I'm right about this theological issue. Just in case you're curious. But I've had this phrase, and it's not in here. It's, you know, so take it or leave it, whether it helps you or not. Here's the thing that's helped me um, in dealing with people who I think are wrong. It's, it's this phrase. I say this. I believe you're wrong, but I believe Christ is in you. To be honest, if I've talked to you for more than about 30 seconds, I've probably had this thought about you. I believe you're wrong, but I believe Christ is in you. I wonder, what would it look like? What would, how would it shape and change our community and our world if we could be the kind of place that could show the kind of grace and mercy and compassion that could, as Paul says, could bear with one another in love? They could look at one another. They could have a community that could be gathered around and say, you know what? <laughs> when it comes to polity in church, I think you're wrong. But I think Christ is in you. When it comes to spiritual gifts, I think you're wrong. But I think Christ is in you. When it comes to end times theology, I think you're wrong. But I think Christ is in you. How could it be? How could we as people be a people that live up to the words of Ephesians, that pursue the bond of unity, that bear with one another. The writer of Hebrews actually gives us a few little tools to help navigate this for us. He says this, look again, if you have your Bible open, look again, he says this in the beginning of verse one, he says, therefore, holy brethren, holy brothers, and sisters. You know, the thing about brothers and sisters is um, you don't get to pick who your brothers and sisters are. Isn't that inconvenient? 
Like, wouldn't it be nicer if, like, you could decide who your brothers and sisters were? Like, because, you know, like, let's be honest, we all have family, right? And, and if there, you, you know the joke, right? You know the joke. Like, if there's not crazy in your family, like, if you don't know someone crazy in your family, like, you're the one, right? Like, there's dysfunction in all of our families. The problem with brothers and sisters is you don't get to pick them. They're decided for you because you share your father. The thing, about, the thing about the church is we don't get to decide who gets to be brothers and sisters. We're stuck with each other. We don't get to decide, well, I don't like that person. I don't like their preference of music. I don't like the way they see things. I don't like the way that they talk. Brothers and sisters, I wonder how it would change the way we talk about one another and we talk to one another and we serve one another and we're committed to one another if we remembered that we are brothers and sisters. We share one older brother. We share one father. And we are one family who one day will sit at one table all together at the celebration of the Lamb. First, that we are brothers and sisters. Next, it says this. At the end of verse 1, it says this. Um, Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. The word there in Greek for confession, this is fascinating. I think it's fascinating. The word there for, for confession is this, is same word. Because that's what you do when, you conf- when we share a confession, when we confess together, when we have a statement of faith or a confession as a body of believers, what we're doing is we're saying the same word. We're confessing together the same thing. We're saying the same thing, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And here's my question for you. What is the word, the confession that people would most hear from you? Like, like if, 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 if all your friends and family and neighbors and people around you could hear the thing that you are confessing with the way you live your life, is it Jesus is Lord? Or is it, I'm right? Or is it, I want to be comfortable? I don't want to be inconvenienced. I want to convince people I'm impressive. That when we gather together, if we are going to be united, as Paul calls us to, as the writer of Hebrews is trying to invite us to, we are going to be people who the single most significant message we will say with our lives is Jesus is Lord. And any message, any word that we confess that is contrary to that, we hope and pray is removed from our lives so that we as one body can, can, can proclaim the one thing that matters, that Jesus is Lord. Here's the last one. This, this is my favorite. This is my favorite. Look, at, it says at the end, verse six, but Christ was faithful as son over his house, whose house we are. If we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Do you ever think with the rest of what you know about scripture that there'd be a time where it was told you that you're supposed to boast? The, the word here in Greek is this like proclamation, shouting confidence. It, the, 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 the delineation in Greek between boasting and pride is almost indistinguishable. 
right? Like, like the, the writer of Hebrews says that there is something that will unify us, that will draw us together, that will help us endure if we, as one voice, confess one word. And that one word comes in boasting, in celebrating, in shouting, in screaming, in pushing out this message of Jesus with all that we are, if the way we live our lives boasts and declares and shouts to all of creation that Jesus is Lord, that there is one banner we walk under, and it is not Moses, it is not Apollos, it is not Paul, it is not our theology, it is not our politics, it is not our orthopraxy, it is Jesus. One of the commentators I was reading had this uh, this, this uh, little passage, I want to read it to you. Um, I really loved it. He says this. Interestingly, the word translated confidence describes more than how someone feels. It describes how someone talks. More than how someone feels, it describes how someone talks. Conveying the idea a free and bold speech that springs from assurance. The word translated pride, isn't that awesome? He, even, he translates just straight as pride. Even goes further, implying something like boasting. So the preacher began the sermon with God doing the talking. I love this. And now the church gets in on the act. When does the church engage in confident, even boastful speech? When it stands at the baptismal pool and proclaims over something as risky and unpredictable as a human being, you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit in baptism and marked as Christ's own forever. When it sits down at the bedside of one in fevered pain and calmly reads the word of the psalmist, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? When it stands at a graveside and is bold to say, do not let your hearts be troubled and don't, do not let them be afraid. When it audaciously says to those who would pollute the air and the water, the earth is not yours but the Lord's. And to those who would build walls between human beings, do you not know that God shows no partiality? When it stands firm at crucial and perilous moments and like Martin Luther King Jr. bravely proclaims, I am not worried now. I've been up on the mountaintop. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord because such speech surges forth from conviction about the trustworthiness of the promises of God that expresses confidence and pride, a kind of pride that belongs not to arrogance but to hope. When I... This last week was graciously, passive-aggressively confronting my dear friend who's also a pastor. And I wanted to try and tell him he was wrong. And I wanted to explain to him why he was missing the mark. And I wanted to explain to him why he was outside the bounds and he needed to correct himself and he needed to figure it out and he needed to come inside to the way that I see the world and the way I see scripture. One of the only reasons that I was able to see with a graciousness and kindness a brother was because just a couple weeks ago, he and I stood right back behind that desk and we worshiped our Jesus together. Because with one voice, 
we declared with full voice and full confidence and even boasting that Jesus is Lord and nothing else matters. <laughs> He's wrong. But Christ is in him. And what would it do to our world? What would it do to our churches? What would it do to our communities if we could look at one another as brothers and sisters, showing one another the same kind of grace and compassion and the same kind of patience that Jesus has shown us? What would it look like if we could gather together one to another together? to celebrate and worship and proclaim Jesus as Lord and the songs that we sing and the things we preach and the way we live our lives, what would it look like if the world around us, the singular message they knew of what it meant to be a Christian, the thing that meant more than anything else to the world about what it meant to be a Christian was those are people who worship with one voice, Jesus. That's, those are people who amongst all the diverse ways of seeing the world, agree on one thing, and that is Jesus, and they will sacrifice in a way that makes no sense to serve one another because they are all sons and daughters of the same king. I pray, may we be that kind of place.